And let me read God's word for us. It says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And this is God's Word. All right. Good morning. My name's Brad. I am the other pastor here. Uh, you can call me anything but late for dinner, because that's not ever accurate, inaccurate. Um, oh, also, one last announcement, actually. Uh, if you have any questions about anything I say this morning, the sermon, the passage, the topic, maybe there's something I didn't cover, maybe there's something that doesn't match what you think I covered or whatever, like... Send in the questions to the number on the screen behind me, and uh, I will get those on my phone anonymously over text, and we'll do my best to answer them after the sermon, but before communion, so during the service. Um, Last week, we had four awesome questions, so I wasn't totally sure on how to answer all of them, but that's just normal, so uh, it was great. But I love this passage, and um, it's one that's really familiar to us. Um, right? The being a, a fisher of men, and, and Jesus' invitation to Peter is something that, um, I'll, if you have grown up in church at all, this is a, a story you've, you've definitely heard before. Um, but I want to start <laughs> with a name that maybe you're not as familiar with, and you probably won't ever be familiar with his name, um, at least not after outside of hearing this sermon. And that name is Cyrus Habib. Cyrus Habib uh, is, he's got a really interesting story. Uh, he, was, he was born blind and uh, to immigrant parents from Iran, um, and they immigrated to the United States when he was uh, a uh, very young child. And his resume reads like a dream, like it is just tailor-made to be perfect, to have all the kinds of upward mobility you could possibly want. It's designed for success. He was a Rhodes Scholar who graduated from Oxford with his master's degree in, I think it was something like um, post-Victorian literature. I'm, I'm just impressed that he was able to, to, to not fall asleep throughout it. Um, he got his, J, his JD from Yale Law School, and after accumulating all of this notoriety, he got into politics. So he started as a, um, a city council member in the state of Washington, and then a representative, and then a state senator. And eventually, in 2016, he was elected the lieutenant governor for the state of Washington. I tell you this because um, he threw a lot of people for a loop in 2020 
when he announced that he was leaving politics, which was a big deal because this guy was, was being labeled maybe the next uh, President Barack Obama. Um, he said he was leaving politics, he was leaving public life to become a Jesuit priest. I got a quote from him, this, this is fascinating. He says, over the last couple of years, I have felt a calling to dedicate my life in a more direct and personal way to serving the marginalized, empowering the vulnerable, healing those who suffer from spiritual wounds, and accompanying those discerning their own futures. I have come to believe that the best way to deepen my commitment to social justice is to reduce the complexity in my own life and dedicate it to serving others. Now, uh, I'm a on and off again a listener to the Ezra Klein podcast, and he had uh, Cyrus Habib on his podcast one, one time, and he was talking about how he became a Catholic uh, at Oxford. And it was fascinating, yes, to listen to his story, but even more so to listen to Ezra Klein's story, or Ezra Klein's questions and his confusion, because he just didn't get it. He quoted this, this, this thing I just read, and he said in, his, in Cyrus Habib's announcements, and he said, I don't understand. If you want to make a difference in the area of social justice, how could leaving politics to join the priesthood and the Catholic Church, how in the world is that actually a better opportunity to make a greater impact? In not quite as many words, Habib responded and, and tried to explain to him. He says that basically that his faith redefined both whose he was and how best to live. And based on that definition, he actually said, you're wrong. It's not that this is something, because, because Ezra Klein was, was kind of like trying to question, like, it sounds like maybe, maybe you're burnt out, you know, maybe, maybe it's not satisfying to you, and he says, no, you don't understand. This is actually a calling, a calling on my life, and one that has far greater and deeper impact as a Jesuit priest than as the future governor or even maybe the future president of the United States. His experience of a greater kindness, much like Peter, redefined and turned his entire world upside down. Now, when we talk about, well, okay, I've got three points for you this morning. We'll, we'll go this way. Jesus' redefining kindness towards Peter, Peter's reaction to that, his response, and then how we respond to that. So let's talk about Jesus' redefining of kindness towards Peter. Now, the setting that Bryce just read in our passage is that Peter and several of his partners, which are you know, basically business partners and, and, and um, peers or maybe employees, they were, it was morning after a very long night of fishing. Um, they used a kind of net called a crammer net. Uh, we know this because this, is, this was very common during the, that time, and for them to be fishing at night, it means it's a particular kind of linen net that fish could otherwise see during the day, so they do it at night. And it takes a lot of work. Like, it is sunset to sunrise kind of work. And so for Jesus to, to call Peter and say, hey, I need you to put your boat back out onto the lake while you're cleaning your nets, um, he's imposing on him kind of significantly. And Peter doesn't know who he is. You know, there's, there's no context for this. It's just, why are you at this lake while I'm fishing and now you want to use my boat, right? It's, it's, it's very strange. It would be very strange for Peter. Peter's exhausted, though. He's probably likely just wants to clean his nets and go to sleep and try again because it would have been pretty demoralizing to, um, 
to, to fish for the entire night and not get anything. Like his livelihood, his family, all depended on it. So you can kind of not blame him when his first response to Jesus is like, I just did this. It didn't work. And now it's during the day when the fish can see the nets. <sighs> if you say so. He doubted, but he still had enough faith to do it. Now, when it says that they were, they were trying to pull in this huge load and, and it required two boats that were in danger of capsizing, these are not like little rowboats or canoes, okay? These are 27-foot-long, 7.5-feet-wide fishing boats. And in order to sink some that big, with that much um, water displacement, it would have required several tons of fish, literally several tons of fish in order to do that while still in the water buoying that weight. I say this because I, I want to try and communicate like, oh, he was fishing, oh, he got a big catch, cool. Now he's all like, whoa, I'm a sinner, Jesus, right? Like, that's like, it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? But the, the point is that this would have been so many fish, it would have been so stunning and in, in front of a huge crowd that was, that was pressing in on Jesus, that this would have been the equivalent of a windfall, a business windfall, like closing the sale of your life, but with a massive audience that would guarantee your celebrity and notoriety, and you would never have to worry about getting a sale or contracting with someone to supply them fish ever again, right? Jesus didn't just undo that night's failure to catch fish. He made their fishing careers for life. Okay, so when, when this happens, the miracle is significant enough and different from their normal experience enough that Peter realizes that Jesus is operating and teaching with an authority that could only be from God. And so this is his reaction to it. Let me reread verse 8 to refresh our memories. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now I know that sounds like fear, and Jesus even says, Don't be afraid. There's probably some fear mixed into it. But the primary response here is actually extreme gratitude. Um, and let me put it this way, because this is, Luke is contrasting this with the passage we preached, I preached on last week. And if you remember that, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, a similar setting, except you know, at a lake versus synagogue, but still teaching a crowd of people, the response of the crowds there were, is this not the son of Joseph? In other words, he is one of us. He's ours. This is great news. He's going to be a blessing to our community, and we are owed his interest. He owes us his interest because he's part of this community. We call that entitlement. As a contrast to that entitlement, you have Peter saying, depart from me. In other words, I'm not worth your interest. He doesn't have a category for the kindness that Jesus has shown him by ensuring he never has to worry about work again. He just realizes that if he is from God, then he's standing in the presence of something he doesn't have a category for. And all he has left is this kind of like, unfathomable gratitude. Now, so let me kind of hammer this home and give you a little bit of an illustration here. Um, Hannah and I have uh, a couple new, uh, well, we have a, a new housemate. His name is Luke, and, 
and his fiancée, Jane. Uh, we've been hanging out a lot lately, and Hannah's birthday was last week. And uh, you can wish her happy birthday on the live stream. Happy birthday. Um, and um, they asked what we were doing for Hannah's birthday, and I, like a great husband, said, oh, I have all the plans in the world. That's not true. Um, they said, you know what, we hadn't thought about it because we haven't even found a, you know, somebody to watch the kids yet. And they said, oh, we're going to do that. They said, we're going to we'll watch Ransom and Deacon, and you go out and um, you know, have a nice dinner, and don't you dare hurry back. And we're like, okay, but they were really, like, really insistent. Like, the gall, <sighs> right? <sighs> and it was great. We had a wonderful dinner, and um, we even got a text from them saying, like, hey, don't hurry back. The kids are down for bed, and it's, everything's fine. You know, have that extra drink. You know, have a good time. Well, when we came home, we were in for a shock. They had the gall not only to watch our kids, but we walked into a living room dramatically different. Specifically, you could see our furniture. You could see our furniture there, and you could see the countertops in the kitchen. They cleaned it. Astounded, shocked, appalled. I even went downstairs, and I said, wait, did you, did you guys clean downstairs too? And you could also see the carpet. I mean, it would have taken Moses-like power to part the Legos from the Duplos. You don't understand how significant this was. But the last straw was when I realized that Luke had actually, actually remarkably beautifully and geometrically organized all my bottles of bitters on my bar so that it was, you could read every label and grab them without disturbing the other one, and it actually, I don't have to move everything around and take it down now. So when I came back upstairs, of course, I said, depart from me, for I'm a vile sinner. I joke, but you all know those times when you, when you experience this gift of such extreme kindness and gratitude that it's kind of uncomfortable. And you're like, what do I owe you? Or you're like, well, I don't deserve this. I'm not worth your interest. I'm not worth your kindness. We call that grace. And it struck me as I was thinking about this sermon, just if I truly appreciated the fact that every breath of air into my lungs is a result of God's pure, unmerited gift of ongoing life, never mind the fact that we get to regather again. Never mind the fact that my wife has a, a new job that she loves. Never mind the fact that our kids are healthy and they're awesome and I love them and we have enough Legos and Duplos to need Moses to part them. It's amazing how entitlement is our default. And it took that kind of extreme kindness for for Peter to, to have that kind of response. That's how much it meant to him. But he didn't just have a reaction, he also had a very decisive response. Again, let me reread the last verse here. It says, when they brought their boats back to land, they left everything and followed him. And it, this wasn't just Peter's response either, this was his partners, the fishermen, the, you know, James and John were, were involved in this, and they left everything to follow Jesus too. In other words, that they're, they're, they experienced a kindness so big and a gratitude so extreme 
that they left the gift in order to follow and be with the giver. Now, I want to anticipate a question you might have at this point, like, okay, this is Peter, he was an apostle, this is either maybe, you know, a unique example of calling, or, or maybe this is for people who want to be a missionary or in vocational ministry or a pastor, like, surely this can't mean all Christians. It does, though. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, that's why his name's on it, but he also wrote the book of Acts, and in both of these texts, he starts them and addresses them to a man named Theophilus, which means lover of God. Theophilus is very unlikely to be an actual specific person. It's, it's kind of a, a, a way of, of, of writing to anyone who loves God and wants to know more about God. This is for the Christian, for all people, for all time, and in every place. But if you were asking that question, it's a reasonable question, by the way, it bears worth asking why we ask that question. Why do we dilute and relegating and relegate leaving everything to just like super Christians? And we struggle, and the reason is this, the answer to that question is, is as Western individualists, and especially Americans who say, hold my beer to that, um, we have a, an uncritiqued cultural assumption that we belong to ourselves, that we belong to ourselves. If we believe this, we say functionally, I am responsible for my own existence and everything that entails starts and ends with me. I must determine my own purpose. I must discover my own meaning. I must achieve my own identity or dignity, value, and worth. I must choose my own community, and it must align with my customized, crafted values. No one else can define me or tell me how to live or who or how much to love or what to believe. But here's the thing. If we ourselves are individually and wholly responsible to determine every aspect of our lives, we will prioritize by default, what most builds up our identity makes us feel worthwhile or maybe like we are a good person, even if that's the opposite of our intent. Now, because one, one, of, my, one of the most helpful quotes from Tim Keller ever, which he's got a lot of them, so it's, it's a high claim, um, he says that Christianity, like, like he, yeah, let me get that straight, all other religions outside of Christianity re call you to repent of your bad works. Christianity, though, calls you to repent of your bad works and your good works done for bad reasons. We're talking about the heart here, okay? Let me give you some examples of how you might see loving others if you believe you belong to yourself. Maybe you want to serve, right? You have good intentions, but you're only willing to serve where you're gifted, where you either have experience or maybe you enjoy serving. Well, is it serving if it's actually for your satisfaction? And by the way, each of these are gonna get progressively more offensive. So, off to a good start. Do you give charitably? And if you do, do you have a, is it, does it look more like a portfolio of personal values or does it resemble and reflect Scripture's priorities? Which, by the way, that would mean since Scripture actually doesn't have anything about, you know, secular nonprofits or anything, it means 
And, and every time generosity is mentioned financially in Scripture, the first place is to give to the local, your local church. Does that characterize the majority? It doesn't have to be a huge majority, but at least 51% of your giving. Or is that just another opportunity to express your personal beliefs, to express your priorities because other people don't care about them as much as you do, and so, but it, so somebody has, has to, and so your church family is neglected as a result. I said they're going to get more offensive. Cool. Um, are you maybe more likely to change church in order to match your political values? Or are you more likely to change your politics to match your church's teaching on Scripture? Or just Scripture itself? Do you decide whether to go to the mountains or church every Sunday morning? Or has the commandment to keep the Sabbath already determined and answered that question for you? I say all this, and I'm wanting to build some tension and make you feel a little uncomfortable because what is it like to live with nothing settled? Like, what is it like to have to figure this out every single time? To not be able to glean from the experience of, of a people and a culture that is dramatically different from your own, but instead just Google it and consider that greater wisdom. One of my favorite scenes in any movie, period, is uh, from the movie Hurt Locker. And if you haven't seen this movie, it's about uh, an explosive ordnance disposal specialist played by Jeremy Ritter. He's great in it. Um, but there's a scene when he comes home toward the end of the movie where he comes home from, from the Middle East and he's with his, uh, I think it's his wife or his fiance and his, their little girl and, and he said his, they're in the grocery aisle or in the grocery store. And when they get to the cereal aisle, she says, hey, why don't you pick out some cereal for yourself? Like just pick out a box of cereal. And she's, he's like, okay. And she leaves and, and you know, his little girl's there and you just see his face. He looks at the cereal, and it's, it's, it's this like really subtle near panic. And what's happening in that moment is he's so used to having things decided for him. Now, the, the analogy breaks down a little bit because we're talking about stress and war being like the thing that, that makes decisions for you as opposed to kindness and grace. But when he has to choose from an infinite number of options, it's paralyzing. And I don't think, because we are fish in water who don't know how to describe what it's like to be wet, I think there is a lot of our despondency and anxiety and paralyzation that comes from having to belong to ourselves far more than any other culture in human history. My point in this is that no one can bear the burden or responsibility that comes from belonging to yourself. Um, a lot of what I'm talking about here, you can find in this fantastic book called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. And when he's talking about this weird, confusing experience of it, he mentions Brene Brown, and I want to read this short paragraph here for you. He says, the modern person every, belongs everywhere and nowhere at once. It's like, have you moved to Boulder County? That's remarkably amazing. Um, in her best-selling book, Braving the Wilderness, popular author Brene Brown advocates for just this idea of belonging. And here's a quote from it. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most 
authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. Pause. I like Brene Brown. I have two of her books. I have read at least one. That is hogwash and unsustainable. That's, that doesn't even make sense. Alan Noble goes on, he says, For the mature person who accepts that they belong to themselves, Brown declares, that they will be free to be completely alone or completely committed to wherever they are because true belonging is sourced inside of them. And according to Brown, the freedom to belong wherever you choose to be because you belong to yourself requires serious courage. On that point, I agree because that sounds terrifying. As we saw before, the defining dynamic of our modern anthropology is the tension between the excitement and terror of radical freedom. Belonging to ourselves, let's, let's redefine that. Belonging to any sinful man or woman, as Peter would say, is doomed. It is a soul-crushing hamster wheel because our need for love and kindness will always outpace our ability to achieve it or satisfy it. Now, here's the good news. You belong... I'm sorry, that's really annoying. The good news is, you belong with kindness. I want to read to you the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Speaking of not Googling something and relying and depending on the wisdom of people who have already solved some of these questions for us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, it says, is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, and I would add from the tyranny of ourselves. He also watches over me in such a way that, listen to this, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must not will, not only will in a predictive sense, but must as in required because of who God is, what he's declared, and what he has done in Jesus work together for my salvation. Because of this, it says that this, the Jesus by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to, from now on to live for him. In other words, to leave everything and follow him. You belong to Jesus. <laughs> it's not your career, it's his. How would you change your decisions in a promotion or to take a promotion or not if it was his career you were working? It's not your marriage, ultimately it's his. How would your marriage be different if it weren't about what you wanted or needed, but it was about what God said was important and would flourish the both of you. They're not your kids. They're God's first and foremost. It is not your money. It belongs to God. It is not your time. He is sovereign and eternal. It definitely belongs to God. Contra, contrary to self-belonging, Jesus invites us to leave everything, not just the bad things, but also the good things that we use and try to earn our dignity, value, and worth with for something infinitely better, belonging with Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to camp out here for the last part, so if you have a question, send that in. But I want to 
fast forward to John chapter 21, verses 2 through 12, to see (laughs) an interaction that Peter has with Jesus that is remarkably similar and dramatically different at the same time. This takes place after Jesus goes to the cross, dies, and resurrects, and it's one of the many post-resurrection appearances he has with the disciples. Starting in verse 2, it says this, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, so the sons of Zebedee were both with, uh, with Peter in the boat in Luke 5, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I really appreciate the bluntness of that. I'm just like, I can't even anymore. I got I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how John kind of weirdly refers to himself in the third person, um, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, because he's a little slow in the uptake, just like me, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Like, the language for threw himself into the sea is kind of like, launched violently, like literally through himself without like, if you've seen Forrest Gump, when Forrest is really excited, I can't remember if it's, it's Jessica or, uh, what's that? Jenny. Oh my goodness. Forgive me, Lord, I'm a fellow sinner. Um, he sees Jenny. He sprints straight off the dock and his like legs are still pumping. He just throws himself off. He's not like diving. He's not like, there's no grace there whatsoever. That's the picture we have of Peter belonging with Jesus at any cost and as fast as he possibly can. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. That sounds like a long way from land if, you're, if, if it's me rowing, okay? When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there, there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. I am someone who is prone to hyperbole, but it is an epic understatement to say that Peter failed a lot. Right? This is the rock that Jesus said he was going to build his church on. This is the same dense apostle who denied Jesus three times in his, great, in his hour of greatest need. He fell, down, he fell asleep while standing guard over Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was arrested. And Jesus called him Satan. (laughs) Like, on your list of the things you've screwed up about in life or failed or feel like you're insufficient for, you haven't had Jesus call you Satan yet. So I think there's grace for that, whatever that is, okay? Few are aware of how little they are entitled to like Peter is. But this relentless kindness of Christ 
that has fueled so much gratitude, he literally couldn't wait to just be with him. It's worth pointing out that the purpose of them coming, of Jesus being there, is literally to just be with his disciples. That's love. There's no earning of love there. There's no worthiness to be earned left. This applies to us by, I want to encourage you, in an ultimate sense, don't come to church, don't pray, don't read your Bible, don't give generously in order to be a better Christian, to feel okay about yourself, to earn your worth, or to fill the empty slot on your tray with something spiritual from the, the buffet of life, okay? Do those things not for Jesus, but with him. Because in his kindness, you belong to him and not yourself. And that's the point. The point is that God's family gathers together. That's why we are called the body of Christ and the bride of Christ in the New Testament at the same time. There is no distinction or difference between spending time with Jesus and spending time with your church family. You belong with him. You belong with his kindness. You belong with the one whose love for you knows no boundaries. This, by the way, is everything Bryce announced and talked about with the spiritual formation incubator that we're going to start this spring. It, we call it an incubator because it, it, the point of it is to catalyze this very posture and vision and culture throughout the table that, yes, is going to apply to the specific things that we call like community or discipleship, but also our worship the witness of belonging to Jesus that is and can be even more characteristic of our life as disciples. It's not, more, it's not about doing more for Jesus. It's about becoming more like Jesus through belonging with him together as a church. Okay, on that note, let me see what questions we have this morning. We have no questions. Well, if you change your mind and you have any other questions, because I understand that like, there are some aspects, especially of what I'm trying to kind of pull out and, and um, kind of like an archaeological dig, gently brush away some of the things that keep us from seeing ourselves truly. I know some of that's really ambiguous. I would highly recommend that book if you're looking for one. But I just want to, my hope is to press upon the importance of that Jesus, his greatest desire, the greatest gift he could give to himself is his people. It is you. And that means that your greatest obligation or your response, yes, fueled by gratitude, is just to be with him because you belong with him. You belong with kindness. It is not an accident that the last, one of the last Appearances of, of Jesus after the resurrection revolves around food. It revolves around food because there is something unique and distinct about hospitality, about sharing food and drink, where we are, the purpose is presence. Presence isn't a purpose for something else, and there is no other purpose. It is sharing 
one another, relational and creational generosity. And I, if I'm, one of the people I most identify with all, all Scripture is Peter, in part because Peter wants to do so many things for Jesus. He wants to, like, be the most committed one. He wants to say, no, Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. You're going to be king. And that's when Jesus calls him Satan because he's, he's missing the point. Because the way up is the way down, and the way of love and kindness is not by earning it. It's by receiving it. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was once again with his friends, his disciples, and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine he poured it out, and he, deli- he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this blood, or this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. I have purchased you. Not your obedience, first and foremost. I have purchased you. You belong to me. You belong, you belong to kindness now. Because it is in grace, not because of anything you've done or merited or made yourself worthwhile, that, that I do this. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. You enjoy belonging with kindness. If that is even remotely, if, if maybe you're like Peter and you're like, okay, if you say so, I'll put the net back down. You can doubt and come to this table. This table's for you. The, ta- the, the, the faith that's required is to, to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. If that's you, Come on up, and as soon as we have 10 to 12 people around, we'll deliver the, uh, kind of distribute the elements and take it together as a family. Take it together as the body and bride of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the beautiful gift that you have purchased us by your blood. You heal our brokenness with your own, and your resurrection is a down payment on the fullness and wholeness of belonging to you that we will experience one day. Until, this, until that time, Lord, I pray that we would take hold of your promise that you are with us even now and you will nourish us through your presence with the bread and wine. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence that we get to be with you. It's the greatest gift of all. In your name we pray.